when we investigate impermanence, dukkha and substancelessness enough, we begin to see things as they really are. And when we see things as they really are and become more and more imbued with that Dhamma understanding, a new phenomena sets in in our mind which is called disenchantment. We can now finally see that what we've been running after in the world is not worth the effort. We may have been giving it our total attention, we may have been expending a lot of effort on it, and we may have always understood it to have the ultimate happiness just around the corner. And we've been turning around many corners and none of them have yielded what we were looking for. And this disenchantment that comes about does not mean indifference. Indifference is the near enemy of equanimity. Equanimity is even-mindedness. And indifference is cold disinterest. It certainly isn't disenchantment. Because we have different mind states and different emotional states, that's why we have also different words for them. To be disenchanted means that we feel no longer grabbed by the proliferations available in the world. They're everywhere. All we have to do is read a newspaper or look at a magazine, read a bulletin board, go to a library. We can see the immense variety of what is being offered. It no longer holds this great pull for us that we need to know. We need to experience, we need to find out, we need to see, we need to hear, or need to have, or need to become. We have seen things as they really are. Knowledge and vision of things as they really are, which is the English translation for that state, means that we've had the understood experience. The vision of it is our inner experience. The knowledge of it is our understanding of it. Knowledge and vision, the notes, the feeling and the mind. In other words, it's not sufficient to realize these things intellectually 
it's also not sufficient to realize these things by feeling. Both have to work together. We've got to feel it and we have to understand what we feel. And if we have actually felt and understood that everything is in constant flux, that there is nothing but vibration all over the place, and this includes each one of us, because if we were to take ourselves out of the universal experience, well, we'd be an outsider, wouldn't we? We'd be pretty much alone. We belong in it. We are part of the whole show. And all of it is moving, constantly moving. And this fluctuating characteristic is easily experienced with a little bit of mindfulness, attention. And we can, in meditation, experience that. So then when we understand that experience, that this constant vibration means nothing but absolute reality, we will eventually come to the understanding that this vibration, this flux, is everywhere. We may actually experience it also in our surroundings. We may not. The main thing is to experience it in oneself. When we do, all that which we thought was so important to get or to become is no longer important because it's also in flux. It's also fluctuating. It's also moving. It doesn't have any solid core to it. So with that disenchantment, we open up much more time and energy for realizing what is important. Now maybe we have already come to the understanding by this time, when this arises, this disenchantment, that there's no need to feel separate. There's no need for each one of us to feel to be a separate unit, individually existing, always fearing to be threatened or overrun by other units and not appreciated or loved and looking for something to find safety in. At that time, we have already had either the experience or at least the understanding of the fact that in reality there is no separation. If we've had that experience through the meditative path, we know it from our own feeling. There's no separation at all. There is a totality which is in constant vibration. Now that, of course, helps us greatly to be disenchanted because if there's a totality which is exactly like us, what is there to want? Or if we are the totality, what can we possibly get or want? We are it already. In um, 
Hinduism that is expressed as Tatramasi, I am that. And it's not a superiority complex. It is a totality experience. This totality experience arises in the non-material meditative absorption, but it also arises if that vibration is felt and we do not separate ourselves from this vibration but let ourselves be, let ourselves go, let this separation go and then experience the vibration as a totality vibration. If that is so, we can no longer reach for anything. What is there to be reached for? We are that. All that exists is us. We are all that exists. There's nobody separate, nobody in there. Now with that kind of understanding, disenchantment becomes complete. Again, it is important to realize that it does not mean indifference. On the contrary, when a person has reached that state of disenchantment, which is actually the first stage of transcendental wisdom, everything else until now has been worldly. When a person has reached that, the energy is laid free for compassion. As long as we are concerned with what we want, we're going to use up a lot of energy trying to get it. As long as we're concerned with what we want to become, we're going to use up a lot of energy trying to become it. But when there's this inner realization that there's nothing to get and nothing to become, then there's plenty of room for compassion and not for indifference. Indifference is disinterest. On the contrary, now it's really interesting to be alive. Until then, to be alive was a chore. It's not easy. One has to get all the things which make being alive a little more comfortable, which make being alive a little more pleasant, a little scary, a little less scary. But all that takes a lot of energy and a lot of time, and it certainly isn't very pleasant. But now, when there's nothing to gain, and certainly nothing to lose, then it's no longer a chore. Life just is. Can you for a moment imagine, realize, experience what it means? Life just is. Nothing to do. It just is. It's very pleasant. It just keeps rolling along. And of course it rolls along to death but that too just is. That's disenchantment. And because it has become pleasant at that time, 
compassion increases quite markedly because the person who has reached that state already has gone through all the other states and knows very well how different this one is from the others. And so we say about the Buddha's compassion that it was ultimate and perfect and it culminated in, and this is a symbolic way of saying it, that every morning in his meditation he threw out the net of his compassion to see whom he could catch in it so that during the day if he caught a person in that net he could teach that person to also reach a state of greater realization. That is the great compassion which arises with, in his case, complete realization. This is not complete realization. This is nothing but disenchantment. And disenchantment also means the purification of our view of what constitutes the past. We're no longer thrown back and forth by our ideas what constitutes the past, nor are we sidetracked by worldly considerations. That doesn't mean we can't live in the world. Where else can we live? The moon is inhabitable yet. And uh, as long as there is a body, it's got to live somewhere. So we live in the world. Where else? The world is everywhere. Whether the world consists of Australian bush, or whether it consists of highways and freeways, or whether it consists of a marketplace, or of a peaceful valley, it doesn't matter. It's the world. But we are no longer sidetracked by those considerations which constantly intrude of what the world can offer and what we would like to get out of it. There is one consideration left and that is what one can give to the world. But what one can get out of it, that's completely gone. And because of that, peacefulness arises. Because wherever one wants to get something, there is a stretching and straining trying to reach that. And there is natural dukkha involved. Because that's the first and second noble truth, if you remember. That if we want something, we're going to get dukkha. Trying to get something out of the world is absurd. Because we are the world. What are we trying to get out of it? And yet, very few people ever realize that. Very few people ever see the world as themselves. Now there's a way of actualizing this particular insight a little more graphically. Because obviously this is a fairly advanced state of realization. It's nowhere anything like liberation, but it's certainly on the way there. And this way of consideration, contemplation, meditation concerns the four elements. And I'll explain that to you 
and if you wish you can use it as a meditative process when calm isn't arising there are four elements which are the consistency of all that is materiality all material things have those four elements now specifically we consist of those four elements if we become aware of them one at a time two, three or four it is possible to become aware of the fact that all that surrounds us has exactly the same element and not just on an intellectual basis because that can be explained but on a basis of feeling it and when we feel it we know it when we don't feel it we forget it the first element that we can become aware of quite easily is called the earth element it's our solidity when we sit the touch sensation of our feet on the cushion provides us with the hardness of the earth element the feeling of the heaviness of the body is the earth element and if we do this in a meditative situation we can feel at the same time the earth element inherent in the floor on which we're sitting or in the cushion or in the clothing earth element is to be found everywhere it's even in the other elements all of the elements contain all of the other elements now obviously earth is out there but we can from putting our attention very strongly on the solidity of this body which we all feel come near the solidity that is outside not just underneath our feet but the solidity which we can feel in earth in tree in rock in anything we touch out there even without going to touch it as we can feel that outer solidity merging with that inner solidity we have a grasp of our non-separation from all that is earth element is only a name it doesn't denote that it has to be crumbly earth it's all that is solid and in a meditation it's quite possible to have the concentrated state 
on one's own compactness and solidity and joining with that which is outside. If we do that, we can also become aware of, for instance, the fire element. Fire means nothing else except temperature. The temperature of our own body. It's quite apparent to us. Sometimes it's cold, we might shiver. Sometimes it's warm, and we might like to take our sweater off. And other times it's just pleasant. We have, by the way, a very small range of pleasant uh, temperature. Now this temperature that we feel within us, we can join that up to, for instance, the temperature that can be felt in the rain. The rain feels cold. It also has temperature. We can join it up with the temperature which can be felt in the earth. The earth might feel warm from the sunshine that it had during the day, if there was any. The tree, it may feel just medium. But we don't need to go out there and touch it. By becoming totally concentrated on our own temperature, it is possible to join up with temperature around us. It doesn't have to be out there. There's temperature in everything we touch, in everything that exists, it has temperature. And we can feel the temperature of the cushion. We can feel the temperature of the clothing. But we've got to be a little bit alert. The water element is interesting. We've got plenty of that out there. And our water element is quite manifold. We have saliva, we have sweat, urine, blood. There's water element in the eyes when there, uh, there are tears or even without tears, there's a water element there. But the water element has a very peculiar quality. It is a binding element. And that's why we consist of almost 80% of water. Because if we weren't, and we don't feel that of course, but if we weren't, all our cells would walk around separately. We'd look a bit funny, but we'd have less of a sense of an ego, most likely. Because we would recognize that there are so many cells, and which one am I now? But that's not the case. We've got the water element, which binds them together. Now, you know that the water element is binding. If you take a bit of flour, pour a little water in, and you get dough. It sticks together. It makes it stick. Now that's what the water element has these two qualities. It has the quality of liquidity and it has the quality of binding together. Now as far as the liquidity is concerned, especially in weather like this, and we can even hear the rain, we can become the rain. As we put our full attention on that and bring it within, we can recognize that that which is within, blood and 
uh, urine and saliva and all the things which are watery in us can join up with the rain out there. As they do, when they come together, less separation, less individuality, less threatening. There's nothing out there that isn't in here. There's nothing there that is actually threatening us because we are it. All of us are exactly that. And yet when we haven't come to that realization and that experience, the whole thing looks as if it's all, they all got it in for us. There can be a fire, there can be lightning, there can be a storm, there can be all sorts of things. But it's all exactly what we are. And the, the fourth one of the elements is the wind element. Now the wind element is particularly noticeable in our breath. And since we've all been watching the breath more or less, we must by now be very much acquainted with our breath. So, is there wind out there? Certainly. So, if we bring the breath and the wind together, we don't have to feel separate from it. We have a possibility of being that what is out there. Now, it is um, all other winds in the body. It's all movement. The wind element denotes movement. There's a lot of movement in the body if we have become aware of vibration, if we become aware of the blood surging, if we become aware of the heart pounding. All of that is the movement of the wind element. Do we know the movements out there? The trees are going back and forth in the wind. The leaves are being thrown back and forth. The water is running. There's a lot of movement out there. Can we become aware of the movement within and join up with the movement outside? It's a matter of concentration. It's not a matter of imagination. It's a matter of experiencing that what is really there within and then coming nearer to that which is outside. And we don't have to stand in the rain for that. It's totally unnecessary. We know what rain is, and we know what wind is, and we know what earth is, and we know what fire is, temperature is. Sometimes, when people go to the ocean, and they are a little bit more relaxed than usual, because they haven't got so many things to do, and they watch the waves go back and forth, it's the possibility of becoming concentrated without even ever having heard of meditation, and actually becoming, coming to the point of feeling one with the waves that are going back and forth, losing that separation because of having really put one's mind there where the waves are going back and forth. Now obviously, this is a feeling of oneness with probably, most likely, the wind element of the movement, the water element of the wave, the earth element of the solidity in the water. If that wasn't there, we couldn't swim in it, nor could we get a boat over it. None of this, of course, is apparent to the person who's doing that, because they probably haven't been told about it. 
But yet there is a feeling of oneness, and if that feeling of oneness persists, one considers this a wonderful experience and wants to go back to the ocean. It's not necessary, we can do it anyway. And with that feeling of oneness which arises, what arises also is a feeling of peacefulness. That person may at that time think it's due to the waves in the ocean. It's got nothing to do with it. It's due to the concentration and losing the separation. We can do it any time we wish once we get our minds geared in that direction. So these four elements are a very helpful way of meditation, inside meditation, to gain a little more of a foothold on this path towards losing the individuality of one's ego concept. Nothing but a concept. We're all full of concepts. And losing a bit of that ego concept, even a little, helps us to find a little more peace. All these are different possibilities of going towards the same thing. If this particular meditation practice should become successful so that one really doesn't see oneself separate from the elements, separate particularly from the elements but also separate from the environment, one again gains a different viewpoint and it again helps us to want less and be more. This wanting less, which is the disenchantment aspect, makes our whole life much easier. Everything we want creates problems. Everything we get creates a problem, whether it is new worldly experiences or possibly belongings. At this time, we are quite able to see, when we've come to this stage in the past, quite able to see that every single item of materiality is undesirable. Some of them are necessary, but none of them are desirable because all of them are prone to decay and all of them have to be looked after, are decaying nevertheless and have to be replaced. Every single item is a nuisance. And that's talking about material items. Outside experiences, worldly experiences, are likely to create more clinging. That too is seen at this time as a great nuisance. The mind has now come to the point where it wants to be quiet, where it wants to have peace. 
It doesn't want to be excited. In the meditative path, that would be equivalent to gaining the equanimity stage of the meditative absorption. On the inside path, this is equivalent to this disenchantment. And knowing that that is the path. Now here at this point, there is no doubt anymore because we've done it. We have recognized what is the path. We have recognized that the path means letting go, constantly letting go. It isn't getting something. Now in the beginning we want to get. We want to get peace, we want to get quiet, we want to get harmony, we want to get concentration, we want to get something. We want to get understanding, we're looking for something. But here, we realize we need to let go. We have already let go of a fair bit at this time, but we need to let go more. Because even though we are disenchanted with the world, it's still me being disenchanted. And me can still have lots of problems. Because me still has to be protected, cared for, and needs a support system. So here comes the real point of letting go. This letting go results in dispassion. Now disenchantment means that we no longer see everything as desirable. And the next step is that we actually don't want anything. Totally dispassionate towards that which the world has to offer. And we can check it all out again at this point. What has the world got to offer? What is it? It's got to offer people, it's offering experiences, it's offering sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touch. And uh, it offers all sorts of different material goods and that's about it and then we check all those things against anicca dukkha impermanent unsatisfactory and substancelessness and again and again we can check it all out and see hmm, does it really apply see at this point we, we recheck that which the insights which we have gained. Now that can be done in a meditation. can be done in contemplation. It doesn't matter. If we do it in meditation, all we need to do is bring up anything that arises. A thought, a feeling, a reaction, an emotion, a sensation anything and see whether it's satisfactory and remains with us whether it is changeable and whether it has substance to it the substance which makes it real which means we can hang on to it if we've gone through the meditative absorptions when have gone to the seventh one we have already had the experience 
that there is absolutely nothing in the whole universe which has any solidity that we can hang on to. Everything is constantly moving. This passion is not dull. It's freeing. It's liberating. We only know how liberating after we have it because we don't even know and don't even realize how imprisoned we are through our desires, through our wishes, through our concepts, through our projections. We are imprisoned by them and we don't recognize that imprisonment until we become free. Sometimes we do get an inkling. When there seems to be just that little freedom, as if a window has opened, and then it closes up again. But then we need to open it again. When this passion arises, it is a feeling of having shed a great burden. The way from disenchantment to dispassion is a letting go process. All the tensions which anyone ever has had or is having now are due to our desires, what we want. And some of these desires aren't even clear. We don't even know what we want. If we do, we'll go all out to get it. This is the letting go process the letting go process not only of desire but of identification with separate individuality. So in order to have anything approaching disenchantment and then coming to dispassion, we need to inquire, contemplate, and use our discerning mind to recognize where happiness lies. Wise consideration. We mustn't go by what the crowd does. We mustn't go by what our habits dictate us. We must go by a wise consideration, by seeing clearly. It's only possible through the meditative process, of course. Without it, the clarity of vision cannot arise. The clarity of vision will always be clouded. But when the meditative process lets go, at least for some time, of all the paraphernalia that we carry around with us, and there is really concentration, and there's a real experience of that, then we can have a clarity of vision. This clarity of vision has to be re repeated time and time again. It doesn't sink in the first time. It doesn't even sink in the second time. We need to repeat it over and over again until we become it. This clarity of vision is then what we are, no longer what we have. 
the difference between having and being. The being part is, of course, the more difficult one. It's fairly simple to understand. It's not easy to do. But what is mostly needed is the motivation for it. Am I ready for letting go? It doesn't mean that we can't live an ordinary life. It's our attitude within towards our life that counts. And as our attitude changes, our actions change with them. And our peacefulness increases. Our feeling of safety and security increases. Because there is nothing that can threaten us. There is nothing that separates us from anything else. But for that, we have to let go the boundaries. As long as we keep our boundaries intact, obviously we must be threatened by others. We must be threatened even by the elements. But when our boundaries have fallen, the boundaries of feeling ourselves just this one individual, when they have fallen, then we can extend and be one with that which with we are surrounded. Then the threat, the fear, is lost. But also what is lost is our trying to get something out of all that. How can we get anything out of it? We're already it. All of that arises out of the concentration in meditation and contemplation. And with that, we purify again and again until there's nothing left to purify. When there's nothing left to purify, then the inner experience is one of freedom. Until that is so, the inner experience is one of tension. Not necessarily being, always being afraid or always being tense. It's the tension between what one could be and what one is. And that tension, of course, does not feel very good. So we have the possibility of the path to liberation, to total liberation. And if we allow ourselves to go on the meditation path, we need to be aware of the fact that this is where it leads to. If we continue meditation, there's no doubt that it will lead to that. If we don't want it to lead there, we better stop. All right, that's enough on that topic. You can ask some questions if you like.
appreciation of those elements of the events as well as an emotional well, the earth element and the, um, all the elements in oneself. Yes, it can be felt as a sensation in oneself. I mean, the earth element is a sensation, temperature is a sensation. All these things are sensations. So we're aware of that. But as you link up with those elements outside, that will be like more to on the level of an emotional understanding. Actually, the word emotional doesn't really describe it. I think what I like to call it would be an inner knowing. It doesn't have an emotion in it. It's an inner knowing that this and that is the same. So here you have tactile, you have sensation, but the other is inner knowing. And inner knowing, of course, is, is inside. No. Uh, the intellectual verbalization, that's what I've just done in the explanation. But the actual practice of it will be that inner arising of knowing. Yes, inner arising of knowing. I can't think of any better word. Yes. No, I'm not so happy with that word intuition. It's being bandied about too much. And uh, it sometimes seems to imply that... uh, well, let's say you you have been on the breath for, let's say, five minutes. And an inner knowing arises that not thinking is peaceful. Because one has been experienced, the inner knowing arises from that. So here we can experience the tactile sensation, and from that the inner knowing arises. We do know that those elements are out there. We do know they're all right here, but it is more effective if we join up with them outside rather than here, because this seems to be sort of limited, whereas the earth seems more open and unlimited. Um, Another thing that I can say about it is this. If we put our attention, let's say, on the earth element within us, which we can feel, at that time, being concentrated on that, we are not aware of person, aware of earth element, right? And not being aware of person, but only of that earth element, it is much easier to have that linkage, that joining up, because there's no person there. And yet it isn't, it's neither emotional, I, I don't, wouldn't like to use the word emotional for it, nor is it sensation, so it has to remain an inner knowing. That's about the best I can do. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
after calm is an ex- that excellent time. After calm is, an, is the best time for inside meditation because the mind can, is like a sponge at that time. It can actually take it in. Um, or also when the mind refuses to get calm. That's also a good time for inside meditation. The best time is after calm. That's the very best time. Yes? Speak up. Speak up. Did you say that you need a concentration for the, uh, on, on the elements? Sure. Is there not concentration on calm? How would you feel? Being concentrated doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be calm. Or, don't you know? <laughs> I mean, being concentrated doesn't necessarily imply you're going to get calm. If you, if you have had enough concentration to have actual calm, you don't want to do that. But if you haven't got the mind thinking, 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 direct its thinking toward this, and it may get interested and concentrated. Yes. It could help very much if you have a visual kind of mind to visualize the outside uh, elements, but you still need that. I'm coming back to feeling now. It's not an emotion, but it is a feeling of linking. That inner knowing produces a feeling, but not an emotion. Sorry? A resonance. No. No, I wouldn't call it that. I don't like that word because I don't, I don't relate to it. I don't relate to that word. Um, the visualization is very helpful, but it isn't enough. It has to still come to, well, here's a sensation, there's a visualization. The two have to join up. And it is an, an experiencing of oneness. It is an experiencing of oneness, yes. No, I like that best. Uh, yes, but not an identification of the person, because you can't watch that person, but an identification of the elements, yes. Yes. Yes, the quality of the element that's within and without is the same, yes. Yes. Right. In the meditation on the 32 parts of the body, included uh, in the four elements, I heard so much about meditation on the 32 parts of the body, but I've never been told how to. Uh-huh. Uh, the 32 parts of the body is inside meditation, and uh, it is that which I mentioned the other day. I didn't call it the 32 parts of the body because I didn't want anybody to start counting whether they're going to find 32 or not. But if you don't know that thing by heart, 
it doesn't help you really so what I said was open up here uh, like a zipper take out all the bits and pieces and put them in front of you and then see which one is you that meditation is different from the four elements uh, yes quite quite different uh, that's actually the parts the an- analysis of the parts yes and if you do know the chant and if you know all the bits and pieces you can check up whether you found them all but if you don't it's, it's a you know uh, become, becomes confusing but everybody knows some of them (laughs) (laughs) so um, uh, it's different yes the the meditation on the elements is not often um, mentioned at all but it can be very helpful very helpful anything else Yes. When you're investigating the different characteristics, is it necessary that they always relate to yourself? Or can you sometimes imagine, say, a tree or a or another person? Yes, certainly. Um, it's very helpful to investigate everything outside of you also. But you should never just remain with that. You've got to come back to yourself also doesn't have to do that every time but if you only do it to everything outside of you you will come to the same result as our scientists that there is no solid building block anywhere in the universe but they they're all right they're solid you know so um, you need to come back to yourself at some stage or or yes I mean if you investigate a cat Ah, that's fine. But you don't really mind that the cat is impermanent. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, I've always found it helpful to use the natural environment, like the bush, uh, to help one see that. Because it's very obvious in the bush that there's always birth, decay, and death. But it is not enough, of course. It's always got to be really within. But that can be like a support system, the outside. And also it helps one, again, not to feel separate. We are that. I'm that. That is me, whichever way you like it. Yes, sure. Um, you were talking about vitality before, and I've been brought up with the idea of a God, mm-hmm. and I'm in respect to that God. A God and a? I'm in respect to that God. It's amazing there is a God out there for someone. Yes. Other one? Yes. 
Well, how, what, what do you see as God? That's the main question. What do you see as God? I mean, surely you don't see an old man with a long beard. Or do you? I mean, that would be too primitive. <laughs> so what do you... What's that? You, the way you I can't hear everything you're saying um, the acoustics in this space must be terrible or I'm getting going deaf as an old man with a beard yes well what about like an old lady instead <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is a, um, a vision which um, we can't really relate to in, a, in a, a mystical context. There's no way to relate to that kind of vision. But if you see it as your relationship with other people, then instead of calling it God, you could call it good and you'd be fine. But it's not so much the idea of the God, the way of Uh, well, <laughs> only if you think of God as some materiality and corporality. But you see, the mystics of all ages have seen God entirely different. There was no corporality or materiality. So there's no um, contradiction between what the Buddha teaches and what mystics of all ages saw in the uh, Christian or Judaic concept of God but it isn't quite as simple as what you're propounding there and I don't think that it's going to help us to um, become enlightened at this point in time so I don't think that this um, comparative religion discussion really belongs here at the moment but I'll be glad to discuss it with you Sunday afternoon Well, yes, the idea may be important, but you could uh, shelve it for the time being and, and uh, look at concentration and look at seeing what you actually experience, not what concepts are, but what you're actually experiencing. Quite different from the concept of God. Yes. Oh, of course, of course. 
So what we are after in the, uh, in the meditative and contemplative experience is the actuality of what we can know and not what we can conceptualize. And it's often difficult to um, find the borderline between the two because we're extremely good at conceptualizing. <laughs> Aren't we? <laughs> okay, anything else? Yes. Not really, no. Not really. Um, but, you see, the inside meditation will not bear the real fruit unless there is some calm uh, to balance it. So we need to get enough calm so that we can gain a bit of insight. And as we gain a bit of insight, we get a little more calm. The two really uh, help each other. Now, some people are quite capable of getting calm first and then gaining insight. Others have to get insight first and then gain some calm. So, we have, now I have given you quite a number of different methods for gaining insight. All of them are equally good, can be used. Um, but we always need to balance with some calm. So, we always can go back to trying to get some calm. And a little bit of insight brings a little calm. So it's, um, it's always a balancing act. Yes? Uh, I find it very interesting that there's so much interesting elements and so little interesting first part of what you're talking about. Sorry? I find it interesting that there's so much interesting elements and so little expressed interest in the first part of what you're talking about, which is coming to the end of one thing. Yes, of course. <laughs> Yes, um, well, the disenchantment and the dispassion, yes. Um, well, you know, it doesn't sound so enticing, does it? <laughs> but on the other hand, it's not a bad sign because the uh, elements is an actual way of doing something. Of uh, It's a how-to. And um, it's good. People should be interested in the how-to. Because after you do the how-tos, obviously you gain some insight somewhere along the line, you know. But you're quite right, I, I noticed the same thing. <laughs> yeah. The disenchantment is the, uh, the disenchantment is the nibida. And the dispassion is the viraga. Yes. The flower of something, yes. The viraga. Viraga. Oh. No, it's just the opposite. When you get to dispassion, uh, this viraga, oh, uh, 
our samvega, well, samvega is something entirely different. Samvega is urgency. Urgency. No. Samvega is urgency. And urgency, should that produce tears, you're saying? Well, I don't know. It's never produced any in me. I can't say, really. Urgency, producing tears. Well, it's, it's conceivable. It's conceivable that a person who is so um, over, overjoyed or overtaken by the urgency of practice that their tears come to the eyes of um, um, maybe not, not having done enough before or being so determined to do it and joyful of doing it. It's, it's conceivable. Mm. So the signs of discussion, uh, probably they show. It's total equanimity. Yes, yes. Viraga in Pali is interesting word. Uh, raga is um, the old ragtime band. <laughs> Rag raga is a um, wild, um, wild um, passions. Wild passions. You know, rage in English. Raging. Yeah, raging. That's the word we're using. <laughs> that's raga. Raging, exactly that. And V is the um, um, negative form of um, non, ending, ending of raging. So it's it's um, um, end of passions. End of passions, yes. End of passions, and uh, it is of course one step before becoming liberated, and it shows itself in equanimity, yes. And that's a I mean, it's a very advanced step on this path. And we're coming to the end of this course, so we have to get to the advanced steps now. <laughs> Whether we're there or not. <laughs> but some vega is something which is very important. That's the urgency. To see the urgency. The Buddha said, we're all like children playing in a house on fire. And because we're little children, we don't want to let go of our toys, so we don't want to jump out. Now, our toys are obviously our cars and our computers and our bodies and uh, our belongings and our, uh, the people that we like. And the house on fire is samsara, the um, constant wheel of birth and death. There's always a fire raging. But we don't know, we don't want to let go. We want to stay there. So we keep on playing with our toys. So he compared us to that. And Samvega is the opposite. Samvega shows us that time is at a premium. That we've got to get going with our practice. So that eventually we're not going to be overtaken by this house on fire with, with this fire the Buddha also compared it to a man wearing a turban that's on fire now if one wears a turban that's on fire you can imagine you know, one to get rid of this it's urgent to feel that urgency 
not to uh, have this feeling of, uh, well, it's okay actually, you know, all this dukkha talk, well, who needs it, it's actually everything is fine, you know, and uh, it's a bit uh, bothersome to sit there in meditation and to watch all one's thoughts and all this sort of thing. So um, we keep on playing our games. And the Buddha said, when some vega occurs, which is the feeling of, or the knowing of, we, not, we have to do it now and not later, that really keeps us then on the path. And some people get it quite quickly, that feeling of urgency. And others never seem to get it. They just keep meandering along. It's all right. Just the way it is. Things are there in the way they are. So that's urgency, some reason. And we rather it's non-raging. <laughs> yes, John. How does this urgency arise? Two poles. Yes. Yes. Oh, right. Yes, that's quite true. Things aren't bad enough and they're not quite good enough. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, the things not being quite good enough in the practice, there's only one way of doing getting that better. That's sitting down there and getting the meditation going. And as the meditation comes together with the concentration, and one actually gets into the meditative absorptions, there's no substitute. That's it. Anybody, and it does happen, unfortunately, I don't understand it, that people do actually have the meditative absorptions and stop practicing. It is, it is very rare, but it does happen. Um, they must have having no dukkha. But you see, this is the easiest way. That's the easiest way to really keep on practicing. That when your meditation brings you so much benefit so much happiness and joy that you realize you can't get any of that out in the world. It's something much, much um, better than what you can get in the world. Having enough unsatisfactoriness can also get you there, yes. But you need a bit of discernment to recognize it. Now, of course, you can have all sorts of tragedies in your life. Well, one doesn't wish them to anybody, but also tragedies can get you to the point of depression, and then you can't practice either. So, the recognition, the wisdom of recognition that the dukkha is constant and can't, you know, be um, conquered, with that wisdom, yes, 
And that's the first step on the Noble Eightfold Path, right view. The right view that there is so much dukkha that even though I haven't got any tragedies, I can't do anything about it. But I think it has a lot to do with one's um, character and one's preconditions. I don't think we can make hard and fast rules because I'm always surprised about something new all the time in people, you know, something I never counted on. But the easiest way is to get the meditation properly going. That's the best way. And easy. Comparatively easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. concentration and the calm to gain proper insight anyway it's just uh, to give the mind some leeway give the mind something to do that it doesn't get completely um, you know bored or or, uh, disinterested in the other thing no that's fine just go ahead. Yes, It's probably a generality which would hold true, but it doesn't hold true in all cases. Um, I know people who are still in the morning of life. Um, I can think of one who's 29, and, um, well, 30s might not be the morning anymore, I don't know. (laughs) That might be already the (laughs) noontime. I think that's a quite a true statement, yes, certainly. If you don't develop any um, feeling of worth, it's very difficult to uh, continue on and then let go because you're still feeling worthless. So you have to, yes, I I think that's a very true statement. 
I think it's quite right and not necessarily age but often does mean age it often does mean age I had um, a student in Germany who um, I think he was about 78 and uh, one day he said to me I don't know whether I'm so old or so enlightened you know and I could know exactly what he meant you know because he was totally disinterested in the world you know so (laughs) I don't know (laughs) am I so old or am I so enlightened (laughs) so I said well we'll check it out Naturally. Yes, um, that's quite true. But it also has to do with the fact that as you have got older, you've had more chances of running after all these different things which sound so enchanting in the, in the youth and uh, which seems so wonderful and really one has to get them. It's so much easier to let go after you've had all that stuff and realized it's useless. <laughs> you know? So age has that advantage that one's had the time to try all this out. You know, and in youth you're still, you know, everything looks wonderful. You know, when, especially when you're very young. It's all very interesting. But then there are some people who are young. As I say, I know one who's 29, I know her very well. Um, it's almost um, well, we'll see, almost disenchanted. <laughs> and that's from a young age to be disenchanted, you know. But it is much easier, yes, if you've had the time to look at it. But then, you know, there are also many more people who are old and haven't got that. This is what we understand. They're still using the rules in the morning. That's why they're finally they're no longer working because they're putting all of their energy Right. Right. That's exactly right. And that that's very pitiful then, isn't it? Uh, Oscar Wilde said once that, that there's only one worse thing in life than uh, not to have the desire for fear is to have them for fear. <laughs> <laughs> Why his development was so painful? And you Well, I have no idea, except it might have been karmic. I don't know anything about it. But the Buddha said like this, that there are four different types of people who are practicing. Now, one type has a lot of dukkha, but gains um, success very quickly on the spiritual path. And uh, another type has a lot of dukkha, and it takes a long, long time till they see truth. 
a third type has a lot of sukha, a lot of pleasure, and it takes a long, long time to gain any kind of insight. And the fourth kind has a lot of sukha and very quick results. So all I can say to you, I hope you all belong to the fourth kind. (laughs) Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Let joy arise in yourself for the effort you are making and the result you are having. Be joyful, not critical. Appreciative. And because of that, Let contentment arise. Fill yourself and surround yourself with these feelings. Put your attention on the person nearest you in this hall. Fill him or her with your appreciation of the effort that person is making. And let the contentment from your own heart overflow into the heart of the other person. So that there's joy and contentment Killing him or her. Now put your attention on all the people who are here in this hall and appreciate everyone's efforts. Have joy with everyone's success. Fill everybody with your appreciation, your joy and contentment.
Now think of your parents and appreciate all the efforts they've ever made. Have joy with them for anything they feel joyful about, no matter what it is. Fill them with the contentment from your heart. Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you and appreciate them for all they've ever done, for their loyalty, for their kindness. Fill them with your joy for their successes. and surround them with contentment so that they may have a feeling of well-being. Think of all your good friends, appreciate them for all the efforts they're making, appreciate them for their friendship, have joy with them for the results that they have had, surround them with contentment. Think of people you know, you may have met them, talked to them or just seen them.
appreciate them for anything you know about them or what you can surmise. Fill them with your appreciation, with your joy for their good results. Embrace them, letting them share your contentment. Think of anyone whom you find difficult. Appreciate that person also for any effort he or she has ever made. Have joy with any success. Let him or her also share the contentment that flows out of your heart. Think of people around here, in the what, and then in the area around here, and let your appreciation and joy reach out to all of them, letting them share your contentment, fill them with appreciation and joy. Embrace them. Letting them know that you're part of their lives and they're part of yours. 